0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. This book is dedicated to the most accomplished instructor I had at Westminster Seminary, Norman Shepherd, who combined Machen's eschatological optimism, Van Til's presuppositional apologetic, and Murray's precise theological language. He was a loyal defender of Westminster's original confession. It was Dr. Van Til who shocked the new students into doctrinal awareness. No fact is unrelated to the God of the Bible, he declared. All truth, to be known aright, must be seen in the light of the revelation of the Creator and Redeemer. By God's grace, we, His redeemed creatures, think God's thoughts after Him. Christianity is not probably true. It is truth. All merely human philosophy and science is challenged and found wanting. God upholds all things, including unbelievers. The believer and the unbeliever have everything in common metaphysically. But, epistemologically, they have nothing in common. In our proclamation of God and His grace, we present the triune God as the sole ground for all our salvation from sin, for all of life, and for all our thinking. If it is, indeed, not our King's intention for the civil authority to enforce the first great commandment, then among the five alternatives Bonson offers as a possible standards for civil law, natural revelation, as indeed, quote, a sin-obscured edition of the same law of God, end quote. quote, suppressed in unrighteousness by the sinner, end quote, is that to which we must appeal. William S. Barker Forward One desire has been the ruling passion of my life. One high motive has acted like a spur upon my mind and soul. And sooner than that I should seek escape from the sacred necessity that is laid upon me. Let the breath of life fail me. It is this, that in spite of all worldly opposition, God's holy ordinances shall be established again in the home, in the school, and in the state for the good of the people, to carve, as it were, into the conscience of the nation the ordinances of the Lord, to which the Bible and creation bear witness, until the nation pays homage again to God. Abraham Kuyper 1897. Calvinism is in crisis. It is shrinking both numerically and in terms of its cultural impact, and has been since 1660, when King Charles II returned to the English throne. How did this happen? Calvinism was once a dominant force socially in Northern Europe. Not because there were many Calvinists, but because they were influential out of proportion to their numbers in charitable works scholarship, science, and business, yet Calvinism today is unknown to most people. Why? There are many reasons, but the most significant one that Calvinists could and should be prevented was this. The intellectual and spiritual leaders within Calvinism have, for over three centuries, voluntarily surrendered the culturally relevant aspects of Calvinism by accepting the dominant humanist worldview that has assailed the Church. Eventually, Calvinists even abandoned the idea of Christendom. One of John Calvin's fundamental assumptions, the precious legacy of Augustine, the post-Nicene church fathers, and the early monastic orders. Meanwhile, the humanists robbed them blind. From 1660 to 1789, the humanists took the fundamental doctrines of Calvinism and secularized them. They stripped these ideas of all biblical theological content and produced a new man-centered worldview, which became dominant in the West. First, they took the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and made it the sovereignty of nature and nature's finest product, autonomous man. The twin idols of nature and history again became the idols of man, as they have been throughout pagan history. Second, the Calvinist doctrine of the priesthood of all believers became the foundation of modern democratic theory beginning with the levelers in the Cromwell period. Calvinism's concept of the right of the laity to vote in church elections became the model for politics. Third, the Calvinist view of God's law and man's God-given ability to recognize it and apply it to this world became the foundation of modern science and technology. Fourth, Calvinism's doctrine of God's sanctions and history, blessings and cursings became in the writings of the anti-Calvinist Scottish common-sense rationalists, the concept of the impersonal market forces of supply and demand. Fifth, Puritanism's unique concept of the triumph of the kingdom of God in history became the foundation of the Enlightenment idea of mankind's inevitable progress. Importing Alien Goods What is even more remarkable is that once secularized, These doctrines were then re-imported by Calvinist intellectual leaders and were baptized by them, but without re-establishing their original biblical and covenantal foundations. These alien categories, based on the doctrine of autonomous nature and autonomous man, were then reported by Calvinist leaders to be in full accord with the fundamentals of Calvinism. There is no better example of this baptism of alien intellectual categories than late Puritan theologian, Cotton Mather's praise of Newton's Unitarian and Deistic concept of scientific law. Mather titled his book, The Christian Philosopher, 1721. So the initial strength of the West's humanist worldview after 1660 was based on stolen goods. Calvinism reimported these goods and thereby lost control over its own intellectual destiny. Steadily. Calvinist intellectuals drank from Unitarianism's temporarily overflowing well, natural law theory, in order to refresh themselves. But that well steadily became polluted as the covenant-breaking presuppositions of autonomous man began to erode the foundations of humanist civilization. The Unitarian humanists steadily ran out of stolen Calvinist wealth to deposit in their moral and epistemological bank accounts. Shifting metaphors, the Calvinists found themselves trapped on board an alien ship. They had adopted the categories of humanism as universal, natural, and religiously neutral categories. This humanist ship began to sink, but they could not abandon humanism's sinking ship without leaving everything but the Bible behind. Shifting metaphors again, they now lived as members of a ghetto, supported by the public utilities of humanist civilization. They had narrowed their definition of Calvinism to a handful of exclusively theological principles that the humanists and the Arminians were uninterested in stealing, namely, tulip. Hardly anyone was interested in a tulip. So the only thing they had left of their own was something that nobody wanted. And so Calvinism shrank in influence, decade by decade, to the point of cultural invisibility, its legacy is nearly lost. In the United States, there are perhaps ten Calvinist theological seminaries, most of them with fewer than a hundred students, some with only a dozen. There are about four supposedly Calvinist colleges, but none of them has restructured its curriculum to reflect the creeds and confessions of Calvinism. None of them teaches the six-day creation in its science classes. Therefore, the larger Calvinist seminary campuses have grown since the mid 1960s by recruiting students from fundamentalists and neo-evangelical colleges and graduates of standard humanist colleges. Seminary students on these larger campuses are not required to take a course on Calvin's institutes in order to graduate. There are no required courses on the history, creeds, and confessions of Calvinism. The result is predictable. Graduates who know very little about Calvinism. This leads to the watering down of Calvinism within those denominations that accept these graduates without rigorous screening. One denomination that does carefully screen its candidates for the ministry is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It has paid a heavy price for this. The entire denomination has about 9,000 fewer members than the First Baptist Church of Dallas. A similar growth versus screening crisis has stymied the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, the Protestant Reformed Church, and the Reformed Episcopal Church. Calvinism is not only in an institutional crisis— It is in a philosophical crisis. Its advocates no longer agree on what Calvinism is or what it means. In this sense, it has a great deal in common with every other movement on earth. Calvinism's leaders, generation after generation, have signed up almost all of their followers to sail on a ship run by humanists. Now that ship is visibly sinking. The West Philosophical Crisis Disintegration the cultural moorings have been ripped up in communist Europe and in the Western democracies. The universities of the West in principle became multiversities a century ago with the creation of the elective system at Harvard. Since then, knowledge has exploded into more and more tiny fragments. But with this fragmentation, the coherence, meaning, and wisdom of humanist education have disappeared. This is not an epistemological crisis limited to the ideologically disruptive social sciences. It is basic to the physical sciences too. Quantum physics since 1927 has taught us that there is nothing holding the universe together at the sub- subatomic level except mathematical equations, except when there is a human observer. No observer means no down there. Only when measured by a human being does material reality in the form of wave functions return to subatomic nature, we have been told. This has been accepted in theory by most theoretical physicists. Only recently have a series of experiments suggested that there really is something down there, besides equations in between scientific observations. Another anomaly, everything in the universe is connected simultaneously at the subatomic level, said theoretical physicist John Bell in 1964 and no one has been able to prove him wrong. Every experiment backs him up. Here is the remarkable implication of Bell's theorem. The speed of light, modern man's last agreed-upon constant, disappears as a limit at that subatomic level. Furthermore, because everything in the universe is connected with everything else, anything can conceivably influence everything else. His theorem tells us that non local influences do not diminish with distance. They act simultaneously. They link up without crossing space. Quote, A non local interaction is, in short, unmediated, unmitigated, and immediate. End quote. As physicist David Merman puts it quote, anyone who isn't bothered by Bell's theorem has rocks in his head. End quote. Modern physics has become the domain of the absurd unless we assume that there is a creator God who sustains the universe and provides ultimate meaning and coherence beneath the seeming absurdities. Otherwise, modern physics is driven mad by questions that make no sense. Assertion? Space is curved. Question? Compared to what? Assertion? The universe is expanding. Question? Into what? This arcane intellectual material from the realm of physics has led to a monumental judicial crisis. One of the first men to recognize this was Harvard Law School's dean, Roscoe Pound. In 1940, he delivered an address to students at the Claremont Colleges in Southern California. He announced quote, Nothing has been so upsetting to political and juristic thinking as the growth of the idea of contingency in physics. It has taken away the analogy from which philosophers had reached the very idea of law. It has deprived political and juristic thought. Of the pattern to which they had conceived of government and law as set up. Physics has been the rock on which they had be- built. End quote. Problem. To the extent that Christian scholars have adopted the latest findings of the secular humanist world as their professional standard of academic discussion and inquiry, they are trapped on board without lifeboats. But now the good ship, rational cause and effect, is visibly sinking. The Newtonian Ideal. How long had this connection between physics and civil law been true? When did physics become the primary model for social theory? From the 17th century, especially after 1660, when Cromwell's reign ended and Charles II returned to the throne, social thought turned from the Bible and medieval organic natural law theory to physics. Descartes had set the mathematical ideal early in the century Sir Isaac Newton and the fellows of the Royal Society after 1661 established the mathematical-experimental ideal in physical science, and the magnitude of their achievements restructured the realm of social theory. This triumph came at the expense of biblical Christianity, especially Puritanism. Newton was a Unitarian Arian theologically, although he kept his theological opinions quiet. He would have lost his job as director of the British Mint had they become known his hand-picked successor at oxford, oxford william whiston did go public with his own arian views and he was dismissed in private newton was also a practicing alchemist his magical experiments were conducted in secret and his successors in physics successfully suppressed this information it did not become known until the british economist john maynard keynes bought the newton papers at auction He wrote an essay on these experiments, published posthumously in 1947. Even today, only a handful of historical specialists are aware of this occult side of Newton's thought. Keynes called him the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, for Newton looked at the universe as if it were a gigantic riddle. For quantum physics, it is a much more puzzling riddle than it was for Newton and his followers, 1660 to 1927. The first social science, economics, was developed in the 17th century as a conscious reaction against the English Civil War and the subsequent cultural disruptions, 1640-60. to The Christians could not argue on anything, thus concluded the fledgling economists. A truly scientific approach to social theory would have to renounce any appeal to the supernatural. It would have to renounce morality, too. Science would have to be morally and religiously neutral, writes historian William Lutquin. Nevertheless, there can be no doubt that economic theory owes its present development to the fact that some men, in thinking of economic phenomena, forcefully suspended all judgments of theology, morality, and justice, were willing to consider the economy as nothing more than an intricate mechanism, refraining for the while from asking whether the mechanism worked for good Or evil. He writes this at the beginning of his chapter. John Locke, philosopher as economist. It was Locke's vision of religiously neutral politics that triumphed after after 1690, the Whig tradition. This Whig tradition replaced Puritan social theory. In doing so, it restructured Calvinism itself. Whig political theory was the philosophical basis of the American Presbyterian revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1788. Newton and Locke, by 1700, had triumphed philosophically over Aquinas and Calvin. The ultimate political victor, posthumously, was Roger Williams. Why did I write this book? This book is A Refutation of Theonomy, A Reformed Critique, 1990 written by the Faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary. I do not regard either book as a classic. My book is what some people will call a quickie. The Westminster book is two, but it took about five years to get it into print. Mine will take about five months. While writing this book, I finished Christian Reconstruction, What It Is, What It Isn't, 1991, which I co-authored with Gary DeMar, I finished work on Millennialism and Social Theory, 1990. I wrote my usual three newsletters per month. I oversaw the shutting down of my investment newsletter office in Texas and its move to Phoenix, Arizona. I spent my normal ten hours a week on writing my economic commentary on the Bible, Leviticus. Finally, I tried, without much success, to keep up with the war in Iraq. In short, I did not devote my full attention to writing this book. And when I say writing... I mean typing with my lone index finger, so it is hardly a great book. It does not have to be a great book. It just has to be better than theonomy, a reformed critique. I do not have to cover everything. What I neglect will be covered by Greg Bonson in the book I commissioned him to write. No other standard. What he neglects will be covered by the contributors to theonomy an informed response. We will present in three volumes our case for theonomy and against Westminster's critique. I do not like to write or publish exclusively defensive books. I much prefer to take the offensive. A lot of people have said that I am offensive, and I have to agree. It is my deeply felt belief that you cannot beat something with nothing. It is not sufficient to show here that Westminster Seminary has self-consciously gone down a pathway leading to a cultural dead end. I have to point out the correct path and explain why it is correct. I have attempted to do do this in Westminster's Confession. But Westminster's Confession is intended to be more than a monograph on how a particular Calvinist institution sold its birthright for a pot of message. What Westminster Seminary has done is a representative example of a much larger process that had been going on for well over three centuries. It is a case study of how the intellectual leadership of Calvinism refuses to adopt the heritage that God has graciously given to Calvinists and only to Calvinists. Instead, the leaders return again and again to the fleshpots of academic Egypt. They also allow their enemies to set the covenantal war's agenda. Worse, they submit to certification by their enemies before they even begin to do battle. This has been going on from the very beginning of Calvinism. It is time to call a halt to the process. Westminster's confession is a warning to Calvinist leaders of the future. Just say no. Cornelius Van Til taught us how to say no. Let us follow his good example. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology